Welcome, everyone, to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Ready or not, you guys. Here we go. Welcome back to another episode of the Two Tongues Podcast. It's been a little while. I missed you. Did you miss me? Let me get a drink of coffee. All right, so I want to talk about ancient Greece again today. I've got um, two of these lined up, this one and the next one probably. We're going to talk about Parmenides and Empedocles. Um why? Well, we did, a, if you remember, an episode a little while back called Psyche in Antiquity, based on uh, a book written by Edward Edinger, a um, Jungian psychoanalyst fellow, um, tremendous, tremendous author, um, talking about ancient mythology from a depth psychology perspective, um, helping, t- helping the reader, helping me to understand um, the meaning of uh, kind of polytheistic worldview that we just call the classical worldview, the Greco-Roman worldview, the ancient Egyptian worldview, the Scandinavian Viking worldview, the Norse, um, and everybody in between, from the east to the west. Uh, Once upon a time, this um, polytheistic worldview was something human human beings took very seriously, and um, it's hard for us as modern people to understand why. Um, Edinger did a great job, I think, of putting it in perspective. And um, if you remember, um, we talked about these pre-Socratic philosophers, especially the early ones like Pythagoras and Parmenides and Empedocles. We talked about them, or he talked about them, as mystical, as um, shamanistic in a way that was surprising to me. And we talked about it before, I don't want to beat a dead horse, but the idea that, that what is at the heart of what we call Western civilization and Western philosophy is mystical experience, very closely related to prehistoric shamanism. And we're going to hear more about that today. It's just, it's just baffling to me. It's like there's Asiatic influences that came into Greece, and um, we see evidence of them in these, uh, in these mystery religions, like specifically Orphism. Um, the Ellicinian Mysteries and others, but Orphism is very ancient, and we'll we'll talk a little bit about that today, and we have before. Um, and I think, and, and really, what Edinger did was he talked really high level about it, and he he indicated that there's fragments, you know, of of these philosophers' writings that we have access to, but not a lot. We, we just have bits and pieces, and he didn't, in his book, give us tremendous amount of quotes from it. And so what I wanted to do was I want to figure out just how mystical these people are. What was it they were saying? What can we deduce from these little fragments that we have? So it's kind of an, kind of an adventure and kind of an art project here uh, to read um, bits and pieces largely out of context and try to understand what they mean. So that's what I want to do. I want to talk about Parmenides the mystic, Parmenides the shaman. This this person today, we're going to focus on Parmenides. Um, heavily in, influenced by Th- Pythagoras, very mystical fellow. Um, I don't want to spoil it. I, I just I guess I'll just jump right into it. But this is really what, what the goal. I want to show you just how mystical the roots of ancient Greek philosophy are, and hopefully it blows your mind as much as it did mine. All right, so the version uh, that I read um, of the fragments of Parmenides was uh, translated by a class, classics um, expert named Stanley Lombardo. I don't know anything about him, uh, but just so you know, this is one translation probably among many. 
And then I'll intro this for you just by saying what Stanley Lombardo said in the preface. Um, he said that uh, Parmenides and Empedocles, so we're going to talk about them in two separate podcasts. Today we're going to focus on Parmenides, uh, but he, he covers both. Parmenides comes from the 6th century BC, um, very ancient in terms of you know um, Western history, and um, Empedocles in the 4th century BC. So again, we're going far, far back uh, in ancient Greece before the time of, of Socrates. And he says that in that period, these philosophers like Parmenides and Empedocles didn't distinguish science or religious experience from philosophical understanding. So philosophy, science, and religion were one pursuit, one thing. And I think that's true. I think there's ways of understanding that even today. With as vastly sophisticated as science has become, it is it is a quest for truth. It is seeking after truth. Um, and that's exactly what religious um, experience is about. Um, that's what science is about. That's what philosophy is about. So you can see to them... Um, Doing philosophy was something like a religious exercise. Something like a religious exercise. So imagine that. You know, thinking deeply, exploring abstractions, uh, exploring your mind and thoughts and capacity for thoughts and, and all of that. You know, spending time with your consciousness in a very focused way. That is a religious exercise. There's something about your mind and your thoughts that are divine. They're, they're certainly not material, and so they, they give clues to the existence of a reality beyond the physical, and so you can see how they can become religious. Um, Lombardo says that, that they represent an older cultural type, so this early philosophy represents an ancient cultural type, something before the classical world is up and running, something before the Greek and Roman ideas that we commonly think about. He says, in many ways, they resemble Siberian and American Indian shamans, <laughs> right? That disappeared from the Greek world in the classical period. So before the classical period, in the West, certainly in Greece, there was something, there was something much more mystical, much more primitive. I don't know if that's the right word, but you kind of you understand the gist. Something uh, like a more ancient and primitive uh, culture that, um, that was the zeitgeist, that was replaced by um, this more ordered classical pantheon, or, uh, polytheism. Excuse me. So he calls this the Greek sh shamanistic tradition, and he says that it had contact with Asiatic shamanism in Scythia, and crossed over into southern Italy in the 6th century BC with Pythagoras. So you can see Pythagoras being kind of the um, OG mystical philosopher, um, and, and, and he's coming from this Asian tradition of shamanism that we can still see evidence of, uh, specifically in um, areas where um, the culture has been preserved for much longer, like in, in Siberia. You know, in the middle of nowhere with not a lot of interaction with other cultures and the American Indian shamans as well. He said both Empedocles and Parmenides trained in some kind of formal meditation practice, perhaps of Pythagorean origin. So, so there's some, some evidence here um, of a connection to sort of Asian um, Shamanism, an ancient prehistoric Asian culture that found its way into Greece at this time, um, and maybe even a high point of that shamanistic tradition, you know, a, a relatively high point of that uh, uh, influencing the um, kind of early uh, modern um, classical Western uh, culture. So meditation is involved, um, shamanism invo is involved, and these are things that oftentimes we think of as more Eastern than Western. Um, he goes on, he says, that a shaman is trained to undertake spiritual journeys and often reports his experience in the form of a song or a poem. Parmenides wrote, wrote exactly that, poems. And he says that they closely resemble these shamanistic reports, both in the details of the journey and in the substance of what the goddess tells him, which is that the universe and our minds form a mutually committed whole, 
the universe and our minds are not different things, but one thing. And where does that information come from? It comes from the goddess. Okay, so this is a revelation that Parmenides is, is experiencing, a message from the divine realm. This is not exactly something that he's deduced or something that he's thought very deeply about and come to some conclusions about intellectually and abstractly. It's not like that. You know, that's what we think about when we think of modern philosophy. So we'll think about the problems, we'll figure out novel ideas, ideas and ways of synthesizing answers, and we'll build on the philosophers that came before us, and we'll try to figure out, you know, bedrock, uh, bedrock facts that we can't, we can't question, build from that. And this isn't what happened. Parmenides receives a message from the goddess, all right? This is, a, this is knowledge, philosophical knowledge, but it's not something Parmenides takes credit for. He received it from heaven, okay? So you get the idea how, how this is different. This is mystical. This is different from, you know, rational philosophy that we think of when we think of the Greeks. And this is where that came from. All right, so that brings me to the introduction of the book, and I want to just share a couple details before we get into the poems. Um, the Way of Truth and uh, The Way of Opinion. Those are the two poems uh, that we have fragments of. So in the introduction, it says that uh, the Homeric and Hesiodic overtones of Parmenides' hexameters. Jesus Christ, let me explain half of those words to you. So Homeric just refers to the poet Homer who wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey. Hesiodic uh, refers to Hesiod, uh, who was an ancient historian, but also um, also wrote um, what we would call mythology, but also history. Uh, but but the earliest, the earliest that we know about. So these are very ancient people um, that wrote that wrote poetry, and he's comparing them to Parmenides. Uh, and they wrote in the same way, hex hexameters, okay? So they wrote in this particular way. Um, and so he's just saying, look, you can see the same um, patterns that you see in, in Homer in Parmenides. And that gives us some reason to believe that they were um, working from a tradition of Orphism, or shamanistic poetry. So Orphism is one of those, these ancient, I mean, maybe the most ancient Greek mystery religion that's about um, Orpheus and Eurydice. And uh, Eurydice goes to the underworld and, and uh, Orpheus has, has to go and save her and, and bring her back from the underworld. So you have this spiritual journey to the land of the dead and back. And this is at the core of shamanism. It's to have an altered state of consciousness, to go somewhere in spirit, to have an experience of some place, some reality that isn't the material here and now. It's a spiritual journey. That's, that's the land of the dead. That's the land of the gods. You know, that's the place maybe you go when you die. But a shaman can go there now while he's living. A shaman can find out the secrets that that place holds, can bring back valuable things from the land of the gods. He says, Parmenides' poem is concerned with a unique inner experience, the encounter of one's mind with being, and the realization that they are the same. The road that leads to this experience is therefore a spiritual path. Okay, so that, that's just sort of a, a restating of what we said earlier. Um, Parmenides' message that he receives from the goddess is, is to understand that our minds and being, which is the, our experience of the material cosmos, are one thing. Now, when he says he's concerned with a unique inner experience, I want you to understand that this is something like an altered state of consciousness. This is related to that shamanistic idea. And the difference between mysticism or shamanism and religion, to me, is something like this. Mysticism comes from an, a personal religious experience, something that you experience yourself. There is no question about the validity of it or about having faith like we might see in a Christian context today. You don't have to have faith that something you read in a holy book is true because you experienced that holy thing. Maybe you became God. Maybe you became that holy thing. Or you had some recognition that you're indistinct from it. It's very difficult to argue with that when you have a, a mystical or religious experience. 
when you become one with God, when you have an encounter with God or the divine, however you want to understand it. Religion, on the other hand, I like to say is more dogmatic, but some people take offense by that word. And what I mean is somebody else had a religious experience, wrote it down in a book, and, you know, I don't begrudge you for that or anybody for that because if you, if you haven't had a, a religious experience of your own, that's the second best thing you're going to get is to, is to read somebody else's or to hear a story about somebody else's and get some vague idea of what, what's possible for you. But if you didn't have that experience yourself, it's kind of like secondhand, isn't it? And I don't want to be too derogatory, but Moses had a religious experience. You know, Isaac had a religious experience. Um, Ezekiel had a religious experience. Uh, Jacob had a religious experience. But every Jew and Christian who reads the Old Testament, how many of them have had a religious experience? You know, have you seen a burning bush? Have you heard the voice of God? Did a dove descend from heaven and say, you are my, you are my divine son? I don't think so. Not for many of us. That's not entirely true for everybody, but it's for most of us, right? And that's the difference here. This mysticism or shamanism, it, it focuses on a unique inner experience, a personal experience of altered consciousness, of connection with something divine, of an encounter with reality beyond the physical, of, of having some um, unquestionable truth in that experience. So that's the difference here. And what, what we're talking about here is this, this personal experience. He says, It's possible to trace a line of Hellenic shamanistic descent, which has the Thracian Orpheus as its mythological prototype. We talked about Orpheus a minute ago, the person that goes into the underworld to try to save his, his wife and bring her back. He goes to the land of the dead while he's alive. And he brings back something valuable. That's the hero's journey. That's the hero's story. That's going into the cave, fighting the dragon, bringing back the virgin or the treasure. That's the same story, the hero's journey. And it involves a spiritual quest of transcending the boundaries of the material world and going into the divine realm. That's what shamanism is about. That's what mysticism is about. That's what religious experience, personal religious experience is and so we can, he can say, Hellenic shamanistic tradition, Greek shamanism, goes back to Orpheus as this mythological prototype. And it begins in Scythia in the 7th century BC. That's our best guess. When the Black Sea was first opened to Greek trade. And there are some figures from that time period, legendary but maybe historical figures. Um, Abaris and Aristeus. These are legendary healer shaman characters, you know, from the 6th century BC or thereabouts. And they have stories about them, how they work miracles, how, you know, they appeared to people after their, after their death, you know, not unlike the Jesus resurrection story, um, things like that. So these, these, these people are semi-historical, legendary people associated with this early stage of Greek shamanism. He said, then it crosses um, into, the Asi into Asiatic Greece uh, with Pythagoras in the 6th century, and Parmenides himself was influenced strongly by uh, Pythagoras. So the shamanistic experience that reveals this continuity between mind and the cosmos, right? That's what the goddesses told Parmenides. The cosmos and your mind are the same thing. So whatever that experience is that gives you that feeling it's not the end he says however absolute and irreducible an experience it may seem it is not validated until it is brought back into the world of everyday life right, so this is the mythological return from the underworld you have to come back right if you die and you don't come back that doesn't matter to the living if you go and you have this experience that maybe we only experience after after we're, we're dead and you come back, well, then you really have information. You go into the depths of the unconscious. You go into the world of the gods. You go, you cross the plane, and you, and you, and you encounter experiences and truth and uh, realities that we're blind to. And then you can come back, if you can come back, and share that information with the living. 
And then we have real mystical knowledge or some idea of something beyond the here and now. And he says, we think of Plato's philosopher returning to the cave after seeing the world of light. So this is just a, a play on, on uh, Plato's allegory of the cave. If you remember, he talks about people being chained up inside this cave, unable to move, um, only able to look at the wall and a uh, fire behind him. Um, producing shadows on the wall with these figures that they can't see. And so these, these people in the cave believe that all that exists are these shadows on the wall. They have no idea about reality. And when they're unchained and they're able to climb out of the cave, they see the, the reality that they thought was real wasn't. And they can see greater and greater levels of reality until they reach the outside of the cave and they see the light of the sun for the first time. And they're completely blown away by this, all this reality that, that exists that they had no idea about, had no inkling about. And this is a, an idea of an, an enlightenment experience, quite literally. And imagine if you were that person who escaped from the cave and you saw the light, and rather than running off into, into the world and having your freedom and enjoying this, you know, uh, great new experiences and opportunities, imagine turning around and going back into the cave to tell everybody about it. Special kind of person, shaman. And that brings us to the way of truth. So this is Parmenides' first poem we're going to talk about. The way of truth. All right, here we go. Starts like this. The horses that take me to the ends of my mind were taking me now to the goddess. The way that leads the enlightened through every delusion. The gates of the skyways of night and day loomed up before us and flew open, creating the vastness of space as they turned. And there was the goddess receiving me. Pfft, buddy, hair stands up on my arms. Can you imagine? So this is a strange way for a philosopher to open up his, his philosophy. The horses that take me to the ends of my mind were taking me now to the goddess. What? It's amazing. So we know in the Greek um, in Greek mythology, we, they have the uh, the chariot of the, the the sun being pulled in a chariot. So you have this kind of imagery of the of the chariot, um, and it's taking him to the ends of his mind, which is interesting because you see this connection with the mind and where it takes him, which is to the goddess. And this is where it begins. And he says this: the way that leads the enlightened through every delusion. And I want to I want to mention that what does he mean by delusion? It seems to imply something like perception is an illusion. And this is you know this is a um, a common uh, enough idea today. I mean, there's a whole uh, school of philosophy called idealism or illusionism that talks about this, where if the mind is all that exists. If we, if we assume that as true, then material reality or the cosmos um, becomes something like an illusion. You know, it's like, a, it's like a dream. I'm dreaming and I project all these images and creatures and activity in my mind. And I have no way of knowing in the dream that they're not real exactly. They are and they aren't. And so this is what, this is what he's suggesting, Parmenides. That he goes to see the goddess. And in this process he becomes aware of every delusion. Like there's something not as real as it, as it seems to read the, the, the reality, the material reality around us. And then there's this crazy kind of weird thing that happens that r reminds me of something like from a religious revelation, reminds me of something from Ezekiel or something else. The gates of the skyways of night and day loomed up before us and flew open, creating the vastness of space as they turned. There was the goddess receiving me. It sounds like a psychedelic trip, like a, like a breakthrough psychedelic trip. It goes on. You are here to be taught both the still heart of truth and human opinion, on which there can be no reliance. You shall also learn how the interpreted world really does exist. And these are just a couple of sentences, but... Really interesting to me, because the goddess tells Parmenides, you are here to learn the still heart of truth. So you're here to learn the truth, 
but also human opinion on which there can be no reliance. And that may seem pretty straightforward. Human beings are fallible. They may be wrong. We can't rely on, on human opinion. But I think it means something more than opinion. I think it means something more like perception, that there's a difference between our, our perceptions and reality. And this is a long-standing philosophical debate. There's a difference between um, the, the imminent and the transcendent, the thing in itself, um, and you know, what, what does Kant say, the, the noumena and the phenomena, right? There's a difference. There's a difference, um, perhaps, between what we perceive and what's really there. What objects are we really perceiving? It's something like a filter for us. We're getting a perception of the thing, but not the thing in itself. We're missing the truth. We're only getting this highly filtered, highly reduced version that we can understand and make meaning of. So truth and opinion, something like that. Then he says, you shall also learn how the interpreted world really does exist. That's the world of our perception. So remember, there's this idea that, that you're going to see through every delusion. But then Parmenides here is saying, but those delusions, our perception, what he calls the interpreted world, really does exist. There's actually something real about the delusion. So it's something like a form of idealism, that what we would understand today is idealism, but not illusionism. They're not saying that the material world doesn't exist. They're saying it does exist. But the goddess is going to help you to understand what that means as part of the revelation. All right. He says, There are two ways for the seeker to understand the world. The first is, it is. And that it isn't, cannot be. The second is, it isn't, and that it isn't must be. No information comes back from this road, for to think and to be are one and the same. I love that. To think and to be are one and the same. So that is the crux of the philosophy right there. That's the crux of the message, the revelation from the goddess. To think and to be are one and the same. And I can't help but be reminded of Descartes, I think, therefore I am think and to be are the same. I think, therefore, I am. Right? This is a pre-formulation of, of Descartes, you know, many, many hundreds of years before him. So, uh, kind of interesting. And I know it's confusing, but he says there are two ways for you to understand the world. The first is that the world, whatever that means, is, it exists, and that it cannot not exist. Right? It's not like the world came into being. Either it is or it isn't. He said, if it is, the fact that it isn't is an impossibility. Okay? He said, or you can say that it isn't. It's all an illusion. It's not real. It doesn't exist. And that, and that has to be the case. This is like that illusionism idea. And, he, he, and Parmenides says, no information comes back from this road. Don't go down this second road. For to think and to be are the same. So to him, he's saying the fact that the world, I think what he means by that is, all of reality, the totality of reality, is, it exists, it is being, and it's permanent and eternal. It didn't come into being, it just simply is being. It is the eternal fundamental reality. And then he starts giving us exercises. You know, this is that training, that shamanistic training. He says, fix your mind's eye on things that are absent, as though they were present. You will find you cannot distinguish being from being. So this is this is this is awesome. I mean, this is something that we we talked about uh, when we talked about Pythagoras already. That if you have whatever objects on the ground, if you have three three four coconuts laying on the ground, you have this idea of quantity four four coconuts, and you take those coconuts away, and you ask, is there such a thing as four? And within the you know in the absence of the, the things that are being you know counted, and in your mind, it's perfectly possible to hold this idea for this this mathematical idea arithmos right. That's what that's what uh, Pythagoras believed was the fundamental reality number, and it's something that you can hold in your mind and has reality in your mind, detached from the physical world if need be. 
It's completely preserved in your mind as an idea. And this is what he means when he says, you cannot distinguish being from being. If I fix in my mind's eye something that isn't there, as though it were there, I close my eyes and I picture my wife, or I picture you know, a steak dinner, or I picture you know, a Christmas present, or whatever it is. He's saying that you can't distinguish the reality of that image mentally from the reality of, of the object existing in the world. I close my eyes, I see that Christmas gift with the green paper and the red bow. I open up my eyes, there it is sitting on the table. That there isn't a way for me to distinguish the object from the idea. And this is how mind and being are tied together. He says, where I begin is all one to me. Whenever I begin, excuse me, wherever I begin, I will return again. So you get this idea of the cyclical nature of reality. Where I begin is all one to me. So everything comes from a, a oneness, a unity. And he says, where I begin, I will return again. This is the Alpha and Omega. This is the cyclical idea that you see very commonly in the East. And so you have this influence here in, in, in the ancient Greek um, philosophy. He says, speaking and thinking are the same as what is. The speaking part is interesting because it reminds me of the biblical logos, the word. Speaking and thinking are the same as what is. God speaks the world into being, and that is what is, right? Adam, Adam names the animals in the, in the garden, and that's what they are, right? So speaking and thinking are the same as what is. Then he says, what is exists. Nothing does not. Keep this before you. So the idea being emphasized here is that reality is eternal, right? It's cyclical. It's eternal. It exists because it's the fundamental reality, and it's impossible for it not to exist. It's existence. How can existence not exist? Something like that, right? And he says, keep this before you. Nothing does not exist. Keep this before you. And this is an interesting path. I mean, it reminds me of the conversations we've had about, about vacuum energy, you know, um, about the fact that, um, you know, if you, if you take everything, all the matter and energy out of, a, out of a space, that space itself will continue to create energy out of nowhere, vacuum energy. There is no such thing as nothing. Nothing, what we think about as nothing, is really something more like the potential for something. Whatever nothing means, it's not an empty abyss vacuum. It's not that. It's something subtle, something non-physical. You might call it spiritual or something in potentiality. It's the possibility for something to come into being. That's what nothing is. He says, and now there remains only my account of the road to what is. Signs there are many, uncreated, undestroyed, whole, single, motionless, complete. He said, these are all signs of the road to what is. So you want to understand, you want to meditate on things like concepts, ideas like uncreated, undestroyed, motionless, complete. This goes back to that oneness. You know, Parmenides said he, he, where he begins is in the oneness. And it's eternal, right? Uncreated. He says, it never was nor will be since it is timelessly a continuous one. What genesis could you find for what is? I will not allow you to think creation from nothing. If it started from nothing, what stirred it to being? It must be totally or not at all. All right, so this is interesting complication with time. You know, he says, it never was nor will be, right? What, what he's talking about, this fundamental reality, we might just call it God, this oneness, the thing where everything comes from. He says, it never was or will be. There's no past or future to this thing. It's all at once. He says it is timeless, a continuous one. It's something like the eternal now. 
you know, the ever-present moment. And what Genesis could you find for what is, he says. It's like, it's like, yeah, God made, this is the argument, God made reality, well, who made God? Right, and that's what he's saying. What Genesis could you find for what is? Who made God? He says, I will not allow you to think that God came from nothing. Whatever God is, is the fundamental reality. It must be totally or not at all, he says. He says, it is indivisible, a homogenous whole, not more in one place and less in another, a plenum of, of existence. So if you don't know what plenum means, I didn't either. I had to look it up. It just means like the, the group of everything, the all, the all of existence. He says, it is motionless. It neither starts nor stops. Birth and destruction beaten away by our commitment to truth. Self-contained and perfectly one with itself. It would be totally deficient if deficient at all. It is there to be known the why of all thinking. Whew, buddy. So remember he talks about mind and being being one thing. And this oneness that makes up everything, he says is the why of all thinking. Thinking is equal to being. And being is the why of thinking. And you get this circular um, image that comes to mind, very much like this cycle we were talking about earlier when he's trying to describe Parmenides' uh, notion of eternity. And it's not like parts to whole, he says. You know, whatever God is, it's a homogenous whole, not more in one place and less in another. The fullness of God everywhere, simultaneously. Neither starts nor stops, self-contained and perfectly one with itself. And this is that idea of the Ouroboros. This is that idea of that, that most ancient religious symbol of the union of opposites, the self-contained, self-created uh, origin. And I just think this idea, it is there to be known, the why of all thinking, is so interesting whatever it is is being described because it would be totally deficient it is motionless what it what is it that you're referring to he doesn't really say the implication is it's something like god or fundamental reality he says it is what thinking awareness is directed to what it's for but what is it right what is it it's something like, it reminds me of this idea of noose that we hear, we hear about from Plato later on, this idea of like a cosmic mind, you know? Or Jung's idea of a collective unconscious, something like that. He says, nothing is apart from what is. It must be complete, like a sphere in space, perfectly round and balanced. The void of nothingness does not exist to fracture its wholeness. And so we get these ideas of sphere and roundness. Uh, again, that, that goes right back to the Ouroboros, the serp serpent swallowing its tail, the image of the self-created thing. Um, you know, uh, he said earlier that it's not, not more in one place than in another. And the idea of a circle is exactly that. It's, it's a shape for which every, every point is equal distant from the center. I mean, it's, it's not in, in one place more than another. And this is a very common um, imagery that surrounds this very primordial idea of God. And that brings us to the next poem called The Way of Opinion. It goes like this. Now you must learn of the world as interpreted by human opinion. Listen to the deceptive order of my words. Men have made up their minds to name two kinds of forms which they distinguish as opposites. All right, so he's talking about this idea of opposites, that men make this determination, that opposites exist. And he says, listen to the deceptive order of my words. He's saying here that, or the goddess is saying here, that this idea of opposites is questionable. It's not, it's not real exactly. It's like a human interpretation. And this goes back to this idea of the world as interpreted the world as, as experienced, the world of perception, and that being, that being not quite the full truth, not quite the ultimate reality behind those perceptions. 
And this, again, is related to that idea of the Ouroboros, because what is the Ouroboros? It's always described as the union of opposites, and that being sort of a deeply powerful explanatory you know, symbol, something that is the union of opposites, explains how there can be oneness and manyness. You know, it's, it's um, an abstraction that you can meditate on and come up with all kinds of mystical ideas, like we're hearing from Parmenides and, and, and mystics from all over the world, all across time. You know, there's a coincidence of opposites. You can't have one without the other. So we think about them as couldn't be f- more different, couldn't be further away from each other. But we can't have one without the other, so they're very close to, to, to each other. You see what I mean? It's like you have this paradoxical thing happening. They're far away from each other, but they're one thing. You know? They're opposites, but they're coincident. You can't have one without the other. And I think that paradox is really paramount. And mystical experience is all about paradox. It's all about contemplating paradox. How can it be that there's something that's one and many? Think about that. How can it be that opposites are opposites and one thing? How can it be that something is the beginning and the end? How can it be that something is uncreated? It goes on, it says, The stars are filled with pure fire. Then the flame dies down and the circle grows dark. In the center, the diamond who regulates all. All right, so this is absolutely crazy to me, but here he's describing the cosmos. He says, the stars are filled with pure fire. I want to point out that that is true, right? I mean, this is a, uh, a very, very ancient uh, human being who has no business understanding that a, a star is a burning ball of gas. But he says, the stars are filled with pure fire. Now, you might think, you know, you look at the star, you see it shining, uh, producing light, and, you know, fire does that. You, you put two and two together, stars are fire. But this is sort of interesting. It's scientific truth that's apparently revealed to him from the goddess, from his altered state of consciousness. He comes back and says, the stars are made with fire, made of fire. You know, pretty crazy, because it's true. Um, but then he says something that is even more baffling. Then the flame dies down and the circles grow dark. What does that sound like to you? What happens when a star dies? The flame dies down and the circles grow dark. When a star dies, it becomes a black hole. And there you have it. Now, that is much more difficult to explain. You might say that an ancient person would say, fire produces light, the stars are producing light, there must be, the stars must be made of fire. It's quite another to say, when those stars die, they turn into circles that are dark. That is incredible. And then he says something else. He says, in the center, the diamond who regulates all. He's, so he's actually saying that there is a spirit in the center of the universe, in the center of, of our galaxy, in the center of this mass of stars that we see in space that regulates everything. And that's interesting. Um, but I want to say, this idea is something like God at the heart of the cosmos, And what we know from modern science is that in the heart of, I think, maybe all galaxies, but certainly in ours, in the the Milky Way, there's a supermassive black hole. It's been detected there in the middle of the galaxy. So you have Parmenides saying there's a spirit in the center of the cosmos that regulates it. And we have evidence of this supermassive black hole there. We also have evidence of stars being formed there, new stars being born. And this is just to say nothing of an article I uh, just read recently, uh, from just from November of 2023, that the Webb Space Telescope uh, discovered, quote, never-before-seen features in the center of the galaxy that astronomers have yet to explain. So there's some mystery there in the center of, of our galaxy. And Parmenides seems aware of it, and that's just amazing. What does it mean? Then he says, all men desire the same thing, apprehend the same thing. The plenum is thought, and thought preponderates. All right, so what is he saying here? All men desire the same thing. It's almost like we're, we're, united, in, uh, we're united by desire. 
He says that we apprehend the same thing. We all have an, ex- an experience of the cosmos, and it's maybe it's not identical, but what we're experiencing is the same, right? We're experiencing the cosmos in one another. Then he says the plenum, remember, that's all that is, is thought, and thought preponderates. So we are thinking beings. We're all thinking beings, and we're united in that way. We're united by being thinking beings. And um, Parmenides believes that there's no difference between being and thinking, so the cosmos as as well is thought. So you and I and everything we experience as the world and reality is thought. And he said, thought preponderates. Thought is everywhere and everything. And your thought, right? You're part of it. And so you have this mystical unity. This recognition of being joined to the divine, being joined to God. And that's what mysticism and shamanism are all about. He says, this is the world in common opinion. Things coming to be and passing away in their season. And to everything men have given a distinct name. So this is kind of a critique. It's a critique of the idea that things pass away. Um, The goddess is saying, not so. Everything is eternal. Everything is thought. Um, And it's cyclical, right? So this is a criticism about perception and the way we think the world is. And that brings me to my conclusion. Parmenides the mystic, the shaman, he who transgressed the boundary between the divine and natural worlds, he who returned from the shamanic trance into the underworld and back again, He is not unlike Jesus by this description. He saw the world open to the divine and encountered the goddess. Not just any goddess, but the goddess. I I think that's a mysterious thing for someone from a polytheistic culture who believed in many gods and goddesses. Who is the goddess? There's a premonition of monotheism in this. And an echo of that primordial mother goddess we're familiar with from Stone Age archaeology. The great mother, Mother Earth, Gaia, chaos itself. That eternal thing from which all other things pour forth. The goddess, right? The divine thing. And what does she tell him? What divine message does she relay for him to take back to the realm of the living? What is her revelation? Well, it is, as she says, a description of what is. Over and again, she speaks of what is, hinting that there is more to it, or that it is somehow different than what is commonly believed. That what is is something more than we think generally. She says as much when she warns against opinion in the way of darkness. A revolution of understanding, it seems, is needed to follow the way of truth. But what is being described as what is? What does she mean by that? What is? I mean, they use the, the phrase the world, but that's not quite right, is it? The world is not any of the words used to define what is. Infinite, uncreated, complete, and motionless. So what is it? It's something more like reality, existence, or being. The plenum, or the everything, is what Parmenides called it. But again I ask, what is this? Is it God? Not a God in the polytheistic sense, but God as the divine itself. Well, let's test that theory, shall we? Parmenides tells us that to think and to be are one, and that thinking is what is. Stated differently, mind, that which thinks, is everything, the all, what is. Mind is indistinguishable from what he calls being, and what you and I might just as well call reality. There is no reality without mind. No matter, no cosmos, no you or I. And while we're all reeling from this idea, he throws the knockout blow, saying, what is, is the why of all thinking. 
what has he done here? What does it mean? Let's slow down a bit. If what is, is thinking, how can it also be the why of thinking, the cause of thinking? How can something be its own cause? Ah, and there it is. Parmenides told us the what is, is uncreated and destroyed, undestroyed. It is the fundamental necessity. The thing we mean by the word is. There was never a time or a state when what is was not. What is is not created, but self-created. It has no beginning, no origin apart from itself. Like the great mythological symbol of the Ouroboros, the serpent swallowing its tail. Like God is described in the Bible as both Alpha and Omega. What do you call such a thing? A self-created thing with no beginning or end. A thing upon which all other things are dependent. Can we not call that God? What else would we call it? And I shall leave you with this little contemplative question. If thinking and being are, in reality, one and the same, if something like mind is the fundamental reality, and if we possess mind ourselves, what could this mean? What does it say of what exactly we are? Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know, it's not easy work, thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode. 